Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with Laura Coates. She's a former assistant United States attorney for the District of Columbia and a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Coates is currently a CNN senior legal analyst, host of her own radio show on Sirius XM, and an adjunct professor at the George Washington University School of Law. If that weren't enough... We can now add author to that list. Her debut book is Just Pursuit. In the memoir, she looks at the justice system and how, as a mother, person of color, and a woman, she's had to find ways to navigate and try to correct an imbalanced system that is often tilted against people who look like her. Just Pursuit. You know, it's interesting because as I as I read it and I looked at what you put forth, I have always said there is the ideal of justice and then there is the reality of justice. And what I found interesting when I read the um, introduction, you say the pursuit of justice creates injustice. Give me a sense of, you know, why you led with that line and, and what made you write this book now? Yeah. You know, this book for me was equal parts catharsis and catalyst. Mm. And I, as everyone else, has been watching what's been unfolding for the past several years and their cries for justice, the demands for justice, as if it's a one size fits all approach, as if it's a destination that you can actually reach universally, as opposed to a very individualized experience, Ed, that I think um, speaks to the idea of our changing definitions of what justice means and what fairness looks like and the sort of cost-benefit analysis that justice really involved, I think is very jarring to people. And I found that the emphasis on thinking of justice in the form of a verdict Mm -hmm. or thinking of justice in the form of it's this particular defendant and this particular victim as if in the periphery, it's non-existent. I really wanted to focus on what it looks like when people are demanding to speak truth to power by telling them what the truth really is about what the justice system as a vehicle for getting to a destination really looks like. And so I chose to confront it um, from the perspective of a narrative memoir rather than, I think perhaps the expectation was some dry law school textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not a, you know, a boring person, I hope you know, and in, in thinking about it. And for me, it was storytelling as a form of activism and helping people to have a lens and a fly on the wall opportunity to experience what the system looks like, even vicariously. Yeah. And what you've done, which is really great, I think, rather than, uh, you know, walk a line 
from a beginning to end story. You take chapters yeah. and you show stories within those chapters to illustrate some of the issues because I think people who only know law through Perry Mason, if you're old, or LA law, or even um, the high profile cases that are seen on court TV and CNN, which I always feel like that ain't real because everybody's on their best behavior because they know the world is watching. But the legal system in America is very much assembly line. Uh, And people miss the idea of, and you talk about it, the characters come in, you know your role, it's very much day to day. And it's a very much detached world for a lot of people who are in it uh, uh, every day. But what I loved about what you did, and I'd love for you to get into that, but I I love that you also personalized this. You didn't just take stories that you could have told and left yourself out, but you personalized it from the very beginning as to, you know, what it meant to you and your family to work in a system that you knew was imbalanced. Yes. And I appreciate you saying that because it was very scary, honestly, for me to be so vulnerable um, in the sense that I, you know, have spent my career talking about other people's experiences in and trying to educate on the law of how the system works, of what it actually looks like. Um, and there is room for judgment, obviously, in the cases that I comment on. I'm asking the court of public opinion in many respects to come to their own conclusion. I asked a courtroom in a criminal trial for jurors to yield the conclusion of a verdict that I wanted them to have. And in these stories, I and in my work, I suffer no fools and I don't leave myself out of the criticism or leave myself out of the roles that I've played within the system that I think desperately needs to be reformed. And I really wanted the vehicle of introspective thought to come through because I think that people believe they know who they are, what they believe. They have a very... um, wonderful impression of what they think their moral compass, where it points. They believe if that were me, if that had been me, here's what I would do. They just, they can tell you everything. And there are moments in our justice system, far too many to count, where we are confronted with this battle of allegiance, Ed, this notion of what the directive is versus what your lived experience is, whether you can be a patriot and skeptical and question whether you can be an agent of the Justice Department and see injustices objectively. And what do you do once you have a seat at the table? You know, we talk about it's better to be in the room where it happens and a seat at the table, but we never go past that step of now that you're here, what is being asked of you will require a great deal more perhaps than you thought. And do you bring your whole self in? Do you act robotically in your approach to justice. I never could. I never wanted to. You know, what's interesting to me, and you talk about it, um, that we are, you know, the sum of all of our parts. And you talk about um, your parents and what they gave you and your siblings um, in terms of knowledge and history and and why you went into the Justice Department and, and, and the Civil Rights Division and the like. And then you talked about your children and the world that they would face. Uh, and that had to kind of gobsmack you to a great degree uh, when we're faced with it in the way we have been over the last you know decade or so. Um, give me a sense of the those personal sides in terms of you know the the kind of 
sit down that you had to have with yourself at, at some moment, I think. Yeah. You know, I was very lucky that my parents did not shield me from the world. They did not act as if it was the days of wine and roses, 365 days a year. I knew that I was a Black person in a country that had historically and oftentimes in present day not embraced me. I knew what it was like to watch my parents struggle with opportunities to get financing where their professional colleagues did not. I saw what it was like to hear the stories of my parents um, you know, with a knock on the door comes in one of their first apartments and says, excuse me, I'm so glad you're here. We want to buy you out. We don't want you here. That sort of duplicity of hello and please get out. Mm-hmm. You're not wanted here, Black family. Um, I know what it's like to be one of only a few in um, Minnesota, where I grew up, and what that looked like when you were asked to be the educator of your peers on issues throughout your entire educational experience. And I knew, I mean, we dined and in my dining room, we dined under the Norman Rockwell painting of a depiction of Ruby Bridges Mm -hmm. with an escort from two federal marshals. We had the picture as well of the um, of the the moving day for Norman Rockwell, where, you know, you had the little black girl Mm -hmm. in the white dress and holding her cat, looking at the two um, neighbors of a black of a white white son and a white daughter with her and her brother. And we saw we understood that civil rights was something that was ongoing. It wasn't something that in our house was. Let's not talk about the uncomfortable parts. And so for me, in my rearing, I looked in complete reverence to those who played a role in getting me to where I was conceptually in a land of opportunity. Um, And so when I really wanted to delve into the the conflict and the idea of being gobsmacked, I always thought that as a mother, I would be able to have the luxury a generation later, hopefully, of having what I call almost that curation experience for my kids, you know, when it's like a museum, right? We're going to go into this wing today and here's how we're, we're going to learn about it. And I'm going to help you to vicariously experience. And then when you're at the requisite age of maturity, then we'll focus on this wing. It's not how it happens, is it, Ed? What happens is real life tells you, boom, It's time for you to go to this wing Mm -hmm. and teach your children about moments that you did not think you'd have to get to for years. And when I have been commenting on the cases like from George Floyd to what happened to Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain and George, and of course, I mean, I could go on for an hour, all the different cases, know that my own children are watching me, watching me give the commentary publicly, the talk to the world, and then asking me for the answers, saying things to me like, mommy, will that ever happen to me? Mm -hmm. And as a parent, I've been forced to make the decision of, do I sort of put you under my wing and comfort and protect, or do I protect you with education, even if it means that you'll be robbed of some level of innocence? And, And that's why I thought this book, and one of the reasons I wrote it, in many respects, was as a way for my children to better understand me, to better understand the world around them through storytelling. And in particular, you know, I focus in the book on the period of my time at the Justice Department 
when I was carrying both of my children, I had back to back, you know, stair step babies. <laughs> and so I wanted them to know, which I don't, I must've been crazy back then. Obviously <laughs> there was no distance learning <laughs> at the time. You wanted more and more kids. But I remember Ed thinking, I want my kids to understand what I was carrying while I carried them mm-hmm. as an homage to parents across the world who grapple day to day with the world and need to explain it to their children. Let's talk about something that I um, have forever been truthful, I think, in terms of the industry that I entered into. And I think it speaks to the law as well. This notion of being unbiased, Mm -hmm. I think, is something wrong uh, in terms of how how we approach it and teach it. None of us are unbiased. We bring biases to the table every single day. The, the, the hope is that you can work against them um, and that you can find ways to mute them, if nothing else. Um, give me a sense of how you continue to deal with that as one who has been very realistic about where we sit right now. Uh, and I would think one who tries to continue to be optimistic in the face of um, reality that says maybe that optimism is naivete as well. That's a really great point. And um, I think about the way in which, you know, opinion is opinion. And I try never to offer an opinion under the guise of a fact. I try to be very clear when I'm offering an opinion because I think there is responsibility in the media, in particular, in an era of misinformation. And when oftentimes opinions are rewarded when they are disguised, I think that it is incumbent upon our credibility as an industry. And I'm real, I'm new to this industry. This is something that I, I did not, I was not um, thinking this would be a part of my career when I was growing up or even as a lawyer, um, when I decided to enter into the media and had the opportunities. So I value credibility above all else. I value straight shooters and those who call balls and strikes. And so I try to preserve that. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that you need to provide people with the mechanisms and the information to be to give an informed opinion. And sometimes those can seem like an oxymoron, an informed mm-hmm. opinion mm-hmm. of things. But I think you can reconcile the two. I think you can present people with the objective information and the facts, and they can lead to a conclusion that is an opinion. And I'm okay with people deriving an opinion from information I provide. Um, I'm also comfortable in terms of giving my opinion. And I think it's because of the experience I had with the Justice Department and that I realized that, you know, I never had the luxury, nor do I think I really ever wanted a luxury of being able to check your identity at the door to somehow pretend that you could become a blank canvas and simply a robot. Who wants to be, I'm not a talking head. I am a a talking and speaking human. I'm an advocating human. And so um, being a mother, being a black woman, being a wife of a black man, being someone with a lived experience as a black woman in this country, as a public servant, all of those things informed my advocacy. They informed my skepticism. They informed the way I approached my objectivity as well. And it also informed the way in which I think it was necessary to persuade um, people to understand the facts as you present them. And so I think, frankly, sometimes when it's, when it's disinformation, I'm against it. 
when it's being straightforward about here is the substance that I bring and the identities that can compete, I think you're better for it in the justice system to approach it that way. And I think oftentimes you're better in the media to just be who you are and let the audience decide. Yeah. Well, I I will save my discussion for what the media is today for another (laughs) time. But let me ask you, for one who... It's a lot, Ed. It's it's a lot. It is a lot. For for one who lived uh, in the Justice Department's world, I'm curious, you know, I I spoke with uh, Eric Holder for, for my book, and we talked specifically about, you know, him wanting to do the right thing and believing that the vehicle of the Justice Department would allow that. But then you, again, are smacked with reality and what that is. One of the things I'd love love for you to address is I want to be careful. And I tell folks, and I use this analogy, we see the convictions in the George Floyd and the Ahmaud Aubrey murders. But I said, we need to be careful because that does not necessarily mean we've turned a corner. It's like those same people who said, well, what do you guys want? Obama was elected. So prejudice and racism are now gone. Should we not be careful uh, not to get ahead of ourselves? Of course. I mean, every gain is easily reversed. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, people had the impression that it was set in stone. How is that working out? Every opportunity to claw back the gains are being realized. You've got um, this impression that we've got these three co-equal branches of government who are going to stay in their lane and be respected by one another. We'll really have three interdependent branches of government. And because of that, politics is more fluid and seeps into the decisions of other branches. You see the script that Supreme Court nominees give as if to suggest, oh, oh, I oh, did did I write 47 law review articles on this? I hadn't (laughs) contemplated this issue. Um, You know, I wouldn't want to talk about a matter that that might come before me, this sort of facade of objectivity that often is in play. You talk about decisions of the Justice Department. um, And I do think that there is an attempt to be impartial. There's an attempt to be compartmentalized. But there is a fear that that there's a fear of the politicization of the Justice Department that often renders their stuff anemic. And I mean it in this respect. If you're constantly worried about the perception of partisanship, we're not going to get a lot done because you're so worried about the public perception and image as opposed to head down and the work. And there's justification for that, right? Coming in an era in the last four years, well, five years at this point, where because it was a political um, department based on what the prior administration had done, there is some corrective action to restore faith or maybe even initialize it for the first time. So there's a reason I, re- I get that. But I think the, the the real frustration is that we have this impression that democracy will just, by virtue of inertia, stay the same. That by virtue of the fact that civil rights was realized in some um, often bygone era, it will continue. But they have to stay in motion, particularly when external forces interfere, which is what happens when people try to promote the big lie. It's what happens when people try to um, litigate and legislate non-existent um, problems, solutions. It's what happens when we ask for justice 
and don't know how to define it or what happens when you march down the street, knock on the door, and the answer is, well, how, what do you want? And you give an answer. You give that answer, um, which gives an exit ramp when it can't be accomplished, as opposed to a litany of all the ways to do so. And I think that is part of the frustration of, bureau- of a bureaucracy, but it's certainly the frustration um, that I expressed in the book. When we come back, Laura's thoughts on police reform, voting rights, and the Supreme Court. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We continued the conversation around the current climate surrounding the three branches of government. When she mentioned the idea of the three being interdependent, I raised my concern about them being more independent and perhaps even competitive for partisan reasons. If you don't think of yourself as a part of of the government, then you essentially think that what you do is above the other branches. They don't think of the code. It's a, it becomes hierarchical. Yeah. And that is exactly the wrong approach. Certainly, you should have agency over your constitutional directives. But the idea of I don't have to consider how my decisions play into our overall democracy, that's dangerous. Let me ask you uh, what you touch on. Uh and infer in the book, and I've not read the entire book, but I call it- But you will, right? But I will. will. (laughs) I just got it. I just got it. But um, the the Kamala Harris dilemma, as I call it, Hmm. the idea of needing to do your job, particularly if you're prosecuting, and oftentimes, as you talk about in the book, and I remember Ben Crump talking about, you know, the only three things in the, the courtroom often- that are black are the judge's robe, the defendant, and Ben. And 
when you have to deal with that, when you know that a system is imbalanced, when you know that a system is tilted, when you know that a system is against those that look like us, um, how do you grapple with the pull of not knowing whether or not that person was just flat out wrong and breaking a law or whether that person was not given the tools needed and the world that we know was pushed against them and catapulted them to that table. Yeah, I think, deal with that? well, you know, I think you, you have to approach it. Well, you recognize, of course, that you're not a sociologist and you're not um, a social worker and both are esteemed professions and have a great deal of dignity, but they are not the role of the prosecutor to consider those aspects at the trial state. Often though, the factors you're talking about, about the composition of a human being come into play at sentencing. Now that's pretty backwards to think about, you only consider the totality of a human being when it's time to figure out whether to put them in a cage and for how long. That says something about our justice system and our prison system in particular, which at times can be very distinct. Um, but I do think that the approach, and I think the misconception oftentimes is that the uh, that you are not able to be objective in your assessment of criminal behavior because your race precludes that. Got to understand that although there was a parade of black and brown men and women coming into the courtroom, I'm talking about I oversaw thousands of matters in the course of my prosecution experience. I can count on one hand how many white defendants I ever saw in the courtroom, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't even require every single digit on my hand. Not even. This is Washington, D.C. And it's not as if black and brown people have a monopoly on crime, mm -hmm. but it does speak to the charging decisions, the prosecutorial priorities, the officers policing priorities as well. Um, but these were black victims as well. Mm -hmm. These were black people who were being harmed as well. The people that were being assaulted, the communities in which there was drugs, the communities in which there was homicide, the idea of sexual assault and child abuse. It wasn't as if um, you had the option to say, well, you know what? I've got to choose only one Black person to support in this scenario. That wasn't the conundrum. The conundrum really was to what extent you approached the police officers, many of whom did their job remarkably well, with skepticism was the objectivity in questioning the decisions. Because when you stood up, when I stood up as the, and I, I, and I look at people who have been prosecutors, including the vice president, with a great deal of reverence, um, because when you stand up and you say you're on behalf of the people, in my case, people of the United States, that included the person who was the defendant. It didn't just mean mm -hmm. the government and the weight against that person. So I oftentimes had to, and I write about in the book, had to make decisions based on a lack of advocacy for that defendant on a defense counsel who was either uninvolved or not skeptical enough about areas and shortcomings in my own cases, having to be honest and forthright, um, knowing the weight of the resources of the federal government, not using them for ill and recognizing when my officers or the evidence dropped the ball. And I think that's the approach as opposed to thinking I'm going to be a Trojan horse. It's I'm going to be a champion 
for the defendant, if need be, but certainly for my case. And the people of the United States include those victims and the defendant. I moved our attention to some current issues and legislation that will shape the political and social direction of the country for years to come. How optimistic are you uh, when you look at the partisan nature of where we sit today, when we talk about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? Um, Do you hold out optimism that we're going to finally see those, um, you know, move past the Senate? I do. I'm an eternal optimist. I don't necessarily believe, as is most legislation, that in its current state, they'll be unchanged and pass. I think there will be concessions, some which will be painful and some which will kick the can of this conversation down the road. But by virtue of the national and global conversations we're having about these issues, that gives me hope that there'll be corrective action. The problem is that people will find sneaky ways to do end runs around what is right. And I, um, my pessimism comes from, in particular, the Supreme Court and the case, and it's an unrelated terms of the nature of my book, but the Texas abortion ban, a clear end run around Supreme Court precedent that was met not even with a slap on the wrist. So by you, you delegitimize yourself if you do not enforce your own precedent, or at least have the wherewithal to punish the audacious. And I think that it's, it, it, if I have pessimism, it's about the approach that some branches of government are taking in trying to preserve their own legitimacy, you know, um, and trying to ensure that the precedent is set and is followed. But I still feel like there's no other choice but to have optimism. There's no other, because if you if we just are cynics about it, aren't we just conceding defeat at that point and saying, well, this is how it's going to be. I mean, imagine if our great leaders and those who came before us said, you know what, I some hope is lost. They're going to roll back things. I'm going to take one step forward and they're going to kick me 10 steps back. Mm-hmm. We have to continue to have that resolve. And I, I, I certainly have it. And I hope that others do too not because we're politically naive, but because there is no other choice than to keep moving forward and demand that we not be constrained. You must have peeked at my notes. The Supreme Court was the second portion of that. Um, But let me ask this, you know, I think people still miss as much as we've talked about it, the, the idea of those Supreme Court appointments are really bigger than who wins the next election. I mean, these are, as you know, lifetime appointments that can can change generationally right. um, the way this country is governed. I think Democrats have been outplayed for mm-hmm. the last uh, decade or two in terms of how to deal with that uh, court and make appointments and gently maybe move some people on when they had an opportunity um, to maybe make an appointment for a younger person. But give me a sense of your overview of the court right now. Well, you know, it's difficult. Um, to disagree with the statement of them being played. Um, We can recall the behavior of Senator Mitch McConnell and the decision to look a president in the eye and say, go kick rocks. Mm -hmm. The indignity of having a DC circuit court judge sit in a hallway 
and wait to be received. If that's not a kick in the teeth of democracy, let alone um, believing that you are higher than the judicial branch and the executive who nominates it, that tells you a great deal. So I don't think you're wrong in that respect. I think that the court has become viewed as a political body, and that is extraordinarily dangerous. And they do not themselves no favors in trying to change that perception. I mentioned the notion of the confirmation hearings when, um, unlike, say, a justice, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was forthright about what her views were, mm-hmm. because that's what's, I think, demanded. I think people and the people of the United States have a right to know how somebody truly feels when you're talking about a lifetime appointment. It doesn't mean that they can, it doesn't mean that they're not going to still rule according to the law, right. but this, this, um, this arrogance sort of um, approach to, I'm going to fool you all and think that I have no actual opinion is just the wrong approach. I think it really makes people believe even more in the political notion of the court. I don't think that packing the court, so to speak, is a realistic possibility. Mm-hmm. I know FDR changed, tried to do that. And the time, certainly he was even a more favored president at the time. And there was arguably perhaps even more of a need during a depression-like era than we have now to, to foster a sense of um, uh, trust in a, in a body like that. But I do think that term limits are on the table. And I think that might be an approach that will be um, that will be championed by many, because I think the perhaps the era of one of one nine member court deciding over the course of a generation might be politically passe. Mm. And um, I think that there is room for that discussion about whether a lifetime appointment is still appropriate. Maybe something similar to what the FBI director has um, in the sense of being able to, although we saw what happened to at least one FBI director <laughs> recently. I know I'm speaking. I know Director James Comey is like, really, actually, Laura, let's just talk <laughs> about that. That's not the blueprint any longer. Yeah. But the idea of figuring out a way for those term limits to extend beyond the political hook mm-hmm. would be a way to do so. But I, I do think that the dissenting opinions that are out there seem to be more in line by Justice Sotomayor and the like of the really the reality of how do you you know what is the credibility you're willing to risk for the perception of objectivity? What just, people understand we're smart. We know what it looks like if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me it's a pig, mm-hmm. and don't tell me I'm wrong. And there's ways for the court to correct their course of action, and I think it's incumbent upon them to try. I close by going back to the book. I asked Laura what I told her was admittedly an unfair question, kind of like asking a parent about a favorite child. Because the book is more a narrative than a wonky guidebook, was there a particular story or chapter that best illustrates what she wants the reader to walk away with? Gosh, you know, I I, I really run the gamut, anywhere from victim blaming to mistaken identity to what it's like to monitor elections in the South to issues surrounding secondary trauma. But for me, one of the things that really leads into all these episodic chapters is the story of what it was like for me as a Black woman to have a hand in the deportation of a man. 
what that was like, those, that battle of allegiance that happened when I thought I knew what I would do in the face of a directive that was not in line with my own personal moral compass, what I would do in the light of civil disobedience and what that really looked like. And it was something that is the confluence of so many different facets of where we are as a society and think about coalition building and kindred spirits of similarly treated groups in America and alliances that are formed and dismantled. And that chapter for me really is the entree into that battle of allegiance. And it asks people to put themselves in the shoes, not just of me, but of the person who is facing a warrant for deportation, has been in the country for decades, a contributing member of society, and his true crime in the end was reporting another criminal. Not that he himself in the same, you could view the same way. And um, I think that chapter is really one that I think people will understand a little bit more about who I am and who I am um, not and the work in progress that we all are in our justice system. And the other chapter, I mean, I'm being greedy here, but the other chapter I think that was so um, important for me was one about a young girl who was the victim of sexual assault. And that victim blaming came from the perspective of a woman and judge. And in an era of the Me Too movement, when we talk about believe women, that was a fallacy in the courtroom and what that really looked like for that young girl to be confronted and challenged in that way. There are just moments of that. And the book has those difficult moments, but it also has moments of triumph, Ed, where you see humanity in the most unexpected places. And you see, you get a bird, or really not just a bird's eye, but a front seat view to what it's like to find yourself in the system and your agency, what you can do about it. Well, the book is uh, Just Pursuit. And I will say this publicly, I've told you this privately, but I, I much appreciate the balanced insight and um, approachable uh, intellectual thought that you bring uh, to the media, which I think is oftentimes uh, sorely lacking. So congratulations. Thank you for that. And uh, I'm going to go read the rest of the book and I encourage, <laughs> I encourage everybody to do so. Well, thank you, Ed Gordon. And it's so nice to talk to someone like you. I always have admired you and think of you as an icon and you never disappoint. And so there's a whole generation and more generations to come that will continue to emulate your excellence, and we hope we don't fall short. So thank you. Thank you. Again, the book is Just Pursuits. And as we like to say, you can find it right now, wherever books are sold. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.
Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.